Uh, good morning, everybody. The Harvest family continues to expand, uh, even this morning. I got a text uh, early this morning from TJ Stefanini. Liz was scheduled for uh, C-section, I think it was Tuesday maybe, uh, but uh, the baby decided, nope, I'm coming today. You know, they have a way of doing that. Eliana Grace, um, everybody's good. And once again, the nursery, the, the female population in the nursery just keeps growing. <laughs> I think that's about 10 girls, little girls under one right now. Uh, so we're thankful for the Stefaninis um, and for God's grace on them. I want to put a question on the screen for you, and I'd like you to turn to a few people around you and discuss it. Um, we've talked a lot as we're going through the New Testament letter of Hebrews. Um, there, there's a lot in there about why these first readers were tempted to abandon their faith in Jesus. Um, but here's the question. Let's bring it to today. Why today are people tempted to abandon their faith in Jesus Christ? Just talk about that with each other. What are some reasons uh, that uh, are behind people's uh, abandoning their faith in Christ? Take, take a few minutes there with a few people around you, and we'll, we'll, then we'll open God's Word. Take about another minute to wrap up those conversations. So um, we got a couple of guys uh, in the aisles with mics. You don't have to speak it into the mic, but I'm going to ask them, I'm going to ask some of you to 
tell us what you talked about in your group. And I'm going to ask them just to repeat it on the mic because we've got people watching on live stream that won't be able to hear what happens that's not mic'd. But just what are some of the things that you shared, some of the reasons why people are tempted to abandon their faith in Christ? Just raise your hand and then you can call. All right, right here, you got right here beside you, Neil. Just say, just go ahead and say it out, Tommy. Charles Darwin. Okay. Right there. Go ahead. Yeah. Their sin. They think it's easier to be without. They've been taught a false gospel. They've been taught a false gospel. You did really well, Francois. You said exactly. That's good. <laughs> That's good. Why else? Oh, all right, right. Okay. Uh, let's start here with Gracia. Yes, the husband can piggyback on that. We have two or three kids, and both of them unrealistic expectations. In other words, if things get hard in life, God's going to rescue them. Yeah, okay. Expecting God to um, serve them instead of serving God. Yeah, yeah, unrealistic expectations. Yeah, some people do have unrealistic expectations, yeah. Um, I think people sometimes attempt to abandon their faith because God's not answering the prayers the way they want it to be. Yeah, and those are, that's tied with that. Maybe prayers aren't being answered the way that they think. Anybody else real quick? Okay, right here. Go ahead, you can say it, and they'll, one of them will hear it. Yeah, people are so dependent on their feelings and they get way off track because everything's based on their feelings. Yeah, I'll still answer. Okay, yeah, if there's more answers, yeah, we can do them real quick. Peter Pressure. Okay. Not rightly dividing the word. Okay. <laughs> not understanding out of context. This. Right, not understanding the scripture and interpreting correctly. Yeah, that's yes. good. Well, those are good. There are a lot of reasons. I, a lot of them I had thought about that you guys came up with. Thank you for sharing those. Doubt. Sometimes people have doubts, right? Uh, maybe they're just the cares of life. You know, Jesus talked about that. We're going to mention the story he told. And sometimes it's, you know, life is, is just hard and a lot of things. And then 
the deceitfulness of wealth. You know, it's like, oh, money becomes the, the primary object. Uh, and then just the appeal of the world or, or sin. Um, somebody mentioned pressure, peer pressure. Um, peer pressure is real on us. Uh, and maybe for some of you, it's more real than for others. Um, thinking about the original readers... I want to repeat something that I said in either the first or second sermon in this series back in the spring um, to give us an idea of the kind of peer pressure they were probably facing. There's this little work called An Unshakable Kingdom, and in it, David Gooding paints a picture of the type of pressure that would have been on these original Readers, remember they were they were Jewish people who had learned and heard about Jesus Christ and made a public profession of faith in Christ. So, listen to what he says. This might have been said to them many times in many ways. To think that you, you who as Jews have heard the oneness of God. Proclaim 10,000 times in your home, in the synagogue, in the temple, ever since you were children, to think that you could be taken in by this fanatical sect who worshiped the man Jesus as if he were God? And who are you to say that our high priest and Sanhedrin were wrong to have Jesus crucified? Just because you have heard stories of the miracles Jesus is supposed to have done and have been impressed by his popular religious propaganda, you imagine he must have been more than human. But our high priests and rabbis knew what they were doing. They saw through his deceptions and had the courage to do what the Bible commands to be done with such deceivers, have him executed. So be sensible. Stop imagining that you know better than your rabbis. Show some respect and gratitude to your father and the mother of your upbringing. Come back to the faith of your fathers and don't ruin your lives by breaking your parents' heart and disgrace your family by abandoning everything you were brought up to believe by running off with this fanatical sect. I'm sure that was said. <laughs> uh, and so they, they faced peer pressure and sometimes... People today face peer pressure of different ways. And let me put one more up there that was mentioned, and that's persecution. We don't live today in America under persecution as Christians. Oh, there, there can be some, you know, some remarks made and, and, and there's some pressure on us, but not, not like some of our brothers and sisters in the world who are being put in jail because they're Christians or even some put to death and even like the people in the first century experienced but it was very real for them and these readers were facing that and this passage that we're going to look at today we come to Hebrews 10 32 to 39 I invite your attention there if you've got a Bible or some type of device that you can see the scripture on. We'll also have it on the screen here. We come to Hebrews 10, the end of Hebrews 10, and we learn about some of the things they went through, 
Um, and let me set the context here before I read the passage. After, a stir, after giving a stern warning to the readers not to abandon their faith in Jesus Christ, that is chapter 10, verse 26 to 31, which we looked at last Sunday at Harvest. After that strong, strong warning, now the author is going to continue to encourage the readers to persevere by, by focusing on what God has promised for those that do. So we, we move, in a sense, from a challenging, stern warning to a positive, encouraging statement. There are a lot of positive, encouraging statements coming this morning. Um, it's, it's warning, and then it's reassurance, and it's encouragement, much like the earlier, one of the earlier warnings in Hebrews chapter 6 was the same way. So let's, let's read the Word of God this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For... In just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one that shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Today, God's Word is going to answer a very important question for us. Why persevere in faith? Why persevere in faith? There are actually three encouragements that come in these verses uh, that give us motivation, that give us incentive to persevere in faith. Once you've come to that point of saying, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, and when it gets tough, when it gets difficult to hold on to that profession why would you keep holding on to that profession of faith in Christ? Let's see what he says to them, and hopefully today the Holy Spirit, through God's Word, will say to all of us. First of all, remember your past and your spiritual treasures. Verse 32, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict of suffering. After they had received the light, that is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, they went through a very difficult time, which this verse calls a great conflict of suffering. The original word there literally speaks of a contest, a challenge. And it was used figuratively of a, of a combat, of a struggle, a conflict. 
We don't know exactly what conflict it is that the writer speaks of. We know there were a lot of them in the first century. We do know later in the the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 4, the writer is going to say, you've struggled, but in your struggle, you haven't struggled to the point of the shedding of blood. So that it's not that they had become martyrs. None of them apparently had become martyrs. We know that there were people martyred uh, for, for their faith but not them. They hadn't gotten to that point yet, but they, we know it was a, a, a conflict. One possibility, I think a, a strong possibility, is that it happened under the emperor Claudius. In AD 41, Claudius imposed a lot of restrictions on the Jewish colony in Rome, but apparently, since that didn't accomplish his purposes, eight years later, In AD 49, he expelled the Jewish citizens from Rome, probably because they were viewed as being instrumental in bringing Christianity there. And so that may be the the time he's speaking of. We don't know that for sure. But what we do know, if we continue in the passage at verse 33, is that they were publicly mistreated. Sometimes. You were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were treated. I talked to a dad this week, not in this church, somebody in in another state, a friend of mine whose teenage daughter is struggling with with acceptance. And there, there was this big event and, and the popular girls uh, were all talking about going together, and they, they, they went together, and they went shopping together, and they bought dresses and did things and, and went to this party and, and left this daughter out. And he was talking about how she's feeling about that and struggling about that. And, you know, all of us want to be accepted by others, right? We, we want to be welcomed into a group In some ways, when these people became Christians, there was a great welcome for them. Hey, you're part of the family of God now. But not everybody liked it. (laughs) And look what happened to them. They were publicly insulted. They were publicly opposed. And at other times, they may not have been publicly opposed themselves, but they were partners with those that were, the second part of the verse. You stood side by side with those who were so treated. Specifically, verse 34, he tells what that means. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So some had been arrested for their faith in Christ. And he's saying to some of these readers, you were publicly opposed and you stood with them. In those days, um, there wasn't a very good meal plan for prisoners. In fact, I don't think there was any meal plan. From what I understand about uh, the, the first century, if, if, uh, 
anything in prison, if you were in prison and you were going to get food or anything good, it was going to be your friends or family members were going to have to come bring it to you. And apparently they did that. They became partners with them. They suffered along with them. They had compassion on them. And again, we know that in the first century, there were various times of atrocities against Jewish people, sometimes just against Jewish people, whether they were believers or not. And sometimes it included Jewish people who were believers. So for instance, in the city of Alexandria in AD 38, Jewish people were expelled from their homes in four of the five wards in that city, and they were all made to live in just one place. And when that happened, notice what happened to their property. Uh, Philo reports, quote, their enemies overran the houses now left empty and began to loot them, dividing up the contents like spoils of war. So their property was taken away from them. How many of you like for your property to be taken away from you? Anybody? Have you ever seen a toddler who's holding a toy and maybe they set it down just for a second and somebody else comes up and takes it? Do you know what happens then? They don't usually say, well, God bless you. You can play with this now. There's something that we want to say, what's the word that starts with M? Mine, right. It's, it's mine. We don't want people taking away what is ours. It's, it's mine. These people had property. And this is amazing. Look, look what he says. You joyfully accept it. The confiscation of your property. There, there are a lot of ways we can respond when people mistreat us and when they take stuff that's ours. We could, we could get mad. We could get angry. We could sulk. We could strike back. We could just accept it but be really upset on the inside. But they didn't do any of those things. They, they joyfully accepted it. That's the grace of God. For somebody to... Take away your property because of your faith, and you just joyfully accept it. Jesus had said to his first disciples in Luke chapter 22, Blessed are you. When people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. The Apostle Paul came along and noted later in Romans 5, 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, how they responded was amazing, but, but why did they respond that way? The last part of verse 34 answers that question. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Chuck Swindoll says that life is 10% of what happens to you 
and 90% of how you react to it. 10% of what happens, 90% of how you react. I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. They were very mistreated. They were mocked. They suffered along with those that were in jail, and their possessions were taken, but they were not focusing on the mistreatment that they could see, but they were focusing on the greater spiritual reality that you can't see with the eye. Their material possessions could be ripped away from them, but nobody could steal their spiritual treasures. And they had the spiritual treasure of God. Verse 34 calls it better and lasting possessions. And I was working on this this week. I thought, what exactly was the spiritual, the better possessions he was talking about? And obviously it's the fundamental spiritual realities that they have. Think about some of the great spiritual possessions that he's already talked about in Hebrews that belong to believers in Christ. We have the one final sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins on the cross. We have Jesus suffering death for us and breaking the power of the devil. We have Sabbath rest now and a hope for heaven later. We have a high priest whose work allows us to go immediately into God's presence at any time and who also is interceding for us before God the Father. We are part of the new covenant where God is our God and we are his people. And we have a family of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, that encourage us and whom we can encourage as well. F.F. Bruce describes it this way, the eternal inheritance laid up for them was so real in their eyes that they could lightheartedly bid farewell to material possessions, which were short-lived in any case. So in light of that, in light of this, what... What should they do and what should we do by extension? Verse 35 gives the answer. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. And this is not talking about confidence in yourself. It's not saying, oh, don't be, you know, have a bad self. No, the confidence in context is confidence in Jesus Christ. It's confidence. It's that public profession that you've made in Christ the public identification with Christ. Now, think about how this passage is structured. He is, for those who are being tempted to renounce their faith in Christ, the writer is giving incentives for them to persevere. And the first one is, look back in the past. Remember that you had an experience with Christ. You had a reality. You knew Christ And in fact, you knew him so much that you suffered for him and you did it with joy. You, because you had a great, great spiritual treasure. Remember that. (laughs) 
It's always important for us when we're tempted, when we're discouraged, to turn away from Christ or our profession of faith in Christ to remember true ultimate spiritual realities, the things that don't change. And I think now of the word somebody said, feelings. (laughs) A lot of times we have feelings that aren't based on the facts. The second reason or the second encouragement for believers to persevere is comes in verses 36 to 38. Persevere because God will come to reward you. Now, your outline says this second encouragement is found in verse 36 to 38, and it is, but verse 35 is so linked to it, I want to repeat verse 35 again because it and verse 36 just go together really well. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. These two verses are parallel. Both of them have an exhortation. Do not throw away your confidence in, in the first, in 35, and then in verse 36, persevere. Both of them have a motive for doing so. It will be richly rewarded, 35, and in 36, when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. So while the first encouragement in the passage encouraged us to look back to the past, this one is saying, look forward to the future. Look forward to the reward that God is going to give you, that he has promised to give you. Now, the original here in verse 36 starts out with the word steadfastness or perseverance. It's, it's put first in the text for emphasis. It, it, would be, it would read like, for steadfastness or endurance you need to have. It's talking about perseverance. It's talking about patience. It's talking about endurance. Now, without doubt, a doubt, God is going to fulfill his promises. But while we're waiting for that, we need to be patient. We need to have endurance. Sometimes God's will for our lives involves easy circumstances. And sometimes it involves hard circumstances. And so he brings a quotation in verse 37 and 38 that, that actually brings together two Old Testament texts. Um, uh, let's read that. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. That is part of Isaiah 26, which reads, Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. So in Isaiah, the Lord is going to come to punish the wicked. And and the writer of Hebrews takes it and adopts this language to speak of the second coming of Christ. And then in verse 38, there's another quote. But my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. So that's a quote from Habakkuk 2, 
verses 3 and 4. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So in Habakkuk, judgment is going to come. It's going to be two-sided. There's going to be a reward for those that are living righteous by faith. And there's going to be punishment for the wicked. 700 years before Christ came, the prophet Habakkuk engaged in a dialogue with with God. He looked around and saw all kind of impression, oppression and injustice, and he was complaining to God, essentially, where are you? And Habakkuk goes back and forth between God speaking, or Habakkuk complaining and then God answering, and Habakkuk complaining and God answering. And in this quote, the righteous person, basically God is saying, uh, oh, it's there's going to be a revelation to come. You, you just need to live by faith right now, faith or faithfulness. So this combination of Old Testament text, Isaiah 26 and Habakkuk, fits the situation of the readers of Hebrews perfectly. They were waiting for the Lord to come, but while they were waiting, they were struggling. There was persecution. There was difficulty. Sometimes it's hard to remain faithful to the Lord because of life circumstances. And they had a choice to make. They could shrink back and experience God's judgment, or they could choose faith and be rewarded by the Lord when he returns. Now, let's just for a minute, we're about to wrap up this point, but I want to put the two passages side by side to watch so we can really bring to light how the writer of Hebrews takes Old Testament scripture and understands it in context, but for his context, he really makes it all about the Messiah. He makes it all about Jesus and all about his coming. So though it, speaking of the revelation, linger, wait for it. And then Hebrews says, for he who is coming. It's not a revelation that's coming. It's a person, right? And then uh, the second uh, part, verse 4, see, he is puffed up, his desires are not right. And now he's quoting out of the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the original Old Testament. If he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him, but the righteous will live by his faith. And there's your quote from Hebrews. In other words, in the Old Testament, the prophet is told to wait for the revelation to come. In the New Testament, we're not just waiting for a revelation. We're waiting for a person. We're waiting for he who comes. Jesus is going to come, and he's going to reward those who wait for him. So let's let's remind ourselves where we've been in the passage, these encouragements for believers to persevere. First, remember your past and the spiritual treasure. Second, persevere because God will come to reward. And then finally, remember what perseverance demonstrates. 
Perseverance demonstrates something very simple. You're a Christian. Perseverance demonstrates that you are a true believer in Christ. And he lays it out. We, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. There are only two paths, only two options. People either shrink back from faith, maybe they reject faith to begin with, or they start a profession of faith, but they shrink back from it and they prove that they're not part of God's people. And in that way, they end up being destroyed. Or they have faith, and they persevere in that faith, and they're saved. That's the two options. The writer calls them to persevere and believes that they will. He expresses confidence that both they and he, he says, we belong to the former group, not to the latter group. Can I ask you? What group do you belong to today? Are you a person who has rejected faith or maybe earlier in life made some profession of faith that didn't change your life and you're tempted to just toss the whole thing in? Or are you one that believes in Christ truly? As I studied this passage, I I thought of a story that Jesus told, a famous one, the parable of the sower that illustrates the relationship between faith, true faith, saving faith, and perseverance and fruit. Matthew 13 says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. And some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Sorry. (laughs) Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, a lot of times Jesus tells parables and leaves them there. And we, know, we ask, well, what does this parable mean? This is an unusual one because later Jesus comes back and he tells the readers exactly what it means. What these different kinds of soils represent. They represent the heart. And he says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Second group. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time when trouble or 
persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Third group. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. What about the last group? But the seed falling on good ground, good soil, refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. True believers hear the word. The word gets in their hearts, and God produces fruit through their lives. Why persevere in faith? Riches, rewards, and reality. He's given us spiritual riches. Look back and remember that. He's promised rewards. And he says, it's the proof of reality. This is the ultimate reality check. True believers do persevere. So let me just apply this. In two ways, if, if you're already saved, if you're a Christian, thank God and wait on him patiently. And maybe you're listening and you're not saved. And if that's you today, today's a great day to repent of your sins. That means acknowledge you're sinful and believe what God says about sin to be true. And you turn and put your faith, your trust in Christ as Savior. 2015 in the Boston Marathon, long, long after the um, official clock um, had been shut off and the crowds were virtually gone, 39-year-old Venezuelan Michael Melamed Crossed the finish line, you know, it's always held on a Monday, right? Tuesday morning at 4 a.m., 20 hours after the start of the race. What made his race so significant? He's there in the middle. He suffers from a disease. He's disabled. He suffers from a disease that's very similar to muscular dystrophy. It makes him difficult it makes it difficult for him to even walk. And yet he entered the Boston Marathon. He's done other marathons, and he finished it 20 years later. So he didn't really run the race as much as walk the race. And as he reflected on his accomplishment, here's what he said. In any marathon, you have to know why you're doing it. Because in the last mile, the marathon will ask you. <laughs> in any marathon, you have to know why you're doing it. Because in the last mile, the marathon will ask you. And part of his motivation, he was doing it uh, to honor the Boston Children's Hospital where he had received treatment as a child. You know, the Christian life, is not a sprint. It's not even a 5K. 
It's a marathon. And I think as I think about this, it's so important, like this man, in the Christian life for us to know why we keep running in that Boston Marathon. And really, for Christians, it's, it's really more for whom we keep running, right? But the text today has reminded us about our spiritual riches in Christ. It's reminded us about the rewards that he has promised, and it has reminded us of the reality that it proves. Why persevere in faith? Riches, rewards, and reality.